Good morning, Bethany. Okay, please turn to Luke 9, um, and we're going to go to chapter 51. Or chapter 9, verse 51, sorry. <laughs> when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from the heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Desi. Well, we get to be back in the Gospel of Luke today, and I am glad to be back in it. It was last spring, as before I went on sabbatical, that we wrapped up kind of a first section in, in chapter 9 that we're finishing up today as we restart um, this series called Accomplished Among Us from the Gospel of, of Luke. And we've got some really uh, challenging words from Jesus today. As you heard them read, I wonder if they struck you, but they are very, really challenging words. In our men's group this week on Friday, we're reading a book called Deeper, and we're discussing um, Christ and our relationship with him. And it came up in our group this week, uh, as the book said this, but then we discussed it, that we have a temptation to uh, domesticate Jesus, kind of shrink him down, to whittle him down, and his call to discipleship, to kind of manageable, safe, proportion that we can handle, um, kind of like we domesticate our pets. I think it was uh, Jeff Kanegi in our group this week had this great example. He was talking about how we have animals and pets that we domesticate, don't we? A cat or a dog, and we, we train them, and we discipline them, and we crate them, don't we, to make sure they don't make a mess of our house and, and our life. I mean, who wants that disruption? We do that with our pets. We train them, domesticate them. Well, sometimes we do the same with Christ, with Jesus. We domesticate him. We want to shape him to fit our life, our household, our desires, our kingdom, rather than his. We end up trying to domesticate him. Don't make a mess of my house, my life, Jesus, with your call to discipleship. And I have to tell you this morning, as we come to this passage, and I came to study it this week, it's pretty clear that Jesus won't be tamed. Jesus will not allow himself to be domesticated. Here's some of the questions we're going to answer to show what I mean this morning, Here, that the text is going to answer. Here's a few. What does it mean, our first one, what does it mean to count the cost of following Jesus? What does that look like? What does that mean? And secondly, what does Jesus expect the cost to be for you and I? What is the cost? And here's a third one. How are you and I supposed to respond when someone rejects us for following Christ? Someone maybe uh, disfriends us for following Christ. These are questions we're going to answer as we look at the, the kind of the primacy that Jesus places on kingdom discipleship in this text and how to respond as followers of Christ when the kingdom world rejects us or the kingdom of the world. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, it's a good morning to hear that Jesus says there is counting a cost to following him. And I think each and every one of us, whether you're a Christ follower or not today, is going to be challenged. And those who follow Christ, you may even be challenged as Jesus challenges these three people in the text to give up something even. 
to count the cost this morning. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. And your scriptures open to Luke 9 as we're going to look at three things today. The example, the call, and then the answer. The example, the call, and then the answer. Let me bless us, though, with a quick word of prayer. Spirit, would you descend upon us and prepare our hearts to hear your word? Would you challenge us and transform us and meet us where we are at with these little vignettes, these little stories of Christ interacting with people? And let us leave here today transformed. Let not one person leave here today without a challenge, a conviction, an encouragement. Real transformation, Spirit, do that work only you can. It's in Christ's name we pray this morning. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to look at the example, the call, and the answer. So let's start with the example of what to do and what not to do, as we see in this story with our first point, the kingdom example of experiencing rejection and the inappropriate response we're going to see. So a couple examples here today, what to do, what not to do, as we look at rejection and a response. It's our first section there in verses 51 to 56. Jesus is wanting to spread his ministry out. He's wanting to spread it out a little further to this group that Luke records as the Samaritans. Look at, and look at verse 51. And yet Luke wants us to know in this context, the days drew near, verse 51, for him to be taken up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Luke, right at the top of this story, is there's sort of a transition. That's sort of a transition verse in all of the gospel of Luke. Now we see Jesus turn his face, set his face towards Jerusalem, and begin to head there. The rest of the gospel of Luke are stories along the way towards Jerusalem. We see that Luke wants us to see that. Setting your face towards something is an Old Testament uh, kind of idiom, and it really means he's resolved. Jesus is resolved to get to Jerusalem. It's like uh, putting the pedal to the metal, or our phrase, there's no turning back now. That's what Luke wants us to see. And the way he travels, the way he will travel to Jerusalem, refers more to uh, his destiny in Jerusalem and what he will do once he arrives there which is die on the cross. It refers more to that than just like the straightest line between two points. Because as we're going to see, Jesus doesn't go directly there, even though he set his face to Jerusalem. He kind of takes the indirect route. As we'll see, he goes different ways uh, and passes different areas on the way. And it's really important for us to think of this today and to, to hear Luke's verse today about Jesus being the way. He's on the way to Jerusalem, and, and Jesus is the way, because the second half today, there are three people that want to follow Jesus. It's mentioned three times in the second half of the text today. Follow, follow, follow. And Luke starts us with saying, well, he's on the way to Jerusalem. That's the way he's going. Jesus' is way. But the following of Jesus' way, or as the way, as the Bible says, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, it doesn't just mean for the disciple, or as the three people we're going to see in a moment, it doesn't just mean following him on the way to a destination. It's not less than that, but it's more than that, too. It's not just following him to an ultimate destination. And this is really important as we talk with the Antons about discipleship today. It's really important for us today if you want to understand discipleship. It's actually, it's absolutely critical. He is that way. He is that way back to God. That is true. I'm the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the what? Father, but through me. So he is that way back to God. But following that way of Jesus is so much more. I love how a new book that's come out, Karen Swallow Pryor and the Evangelical Imagination, she puts it in her, uh, in her book, this idea of following him. And we got to hear this first today because Jesus resolves, he said, he set his face, Luke says, to Jerusalem. And he may be asking a lot of you today in this way. And so we have to hear this. She said this way, and we'll summarize it after, but she said, Jesus is also the way. No Christian, and certainly no evangelical, would deny it. But when evangelicals talk about Jesus being the way, it's usually imagined as a straightforward, literal manner. Jesus is the way to God, the way to eternal life, the way to heaven. 
She goes on, while this is true, there's so much more embedded in that word, the way, in that image than simply a path or a road. Evangelicals tend to emphasize how Jesus is the way to something. That's the direct route. But when Jesus invites us to follow him, it means more than just walking behind him on the road toward a destination or the cross serving as a plank placed over a chasm between you and God. It's more than that. Jesus invites us to adopt his way and his ways. He invites us to be like him, to imitate him, to call his father, father too, to die to self as he did, to participate in his nature, to be grafted onto the true vine in order to bear fruit that tastes like him, the vine. Hmm. That is a much more undomesticated view of Jesus and discipleship. That actually even sounds a little risky and kind of all-encompassing. That It's not just we follow him as the way to receive our, our, our ticket to heaven, our security of salvation, although it is that. Christ is asking us the way to be, follow him in all things, in all ways, in all times, in all days and places, and even if it means dying to self as he did, she said. That sounds much more risky and all-encompassing. Well, it is, so let's see an example of the risk that this, some of the disciples took and the rejection they took. Let's look at it. Here's our first thing underneath our first point. Rejection, don't be surprised by rejection or when rejection comes in your life because we clearly see that here with the disciples today. As I said, they go into this Samaritan village. Jesus is wanting to expand his ministry to people groups outside of just Jewish people. And the Samaritans were, um, the, they were Jewish, but they lived in the northern Israel, but they had intermarried with Gentiles. And so you would call them a, a mixture of, of races. And these Samaritans were seen to the Jews as traitors, uh, as half-breeds, and truly outcasts. And this is really important to our story today, who this people group was. That's why Luke mentions it. Because as we see in verse 53 there, Jesus and the disciples were rejected. They were flat out rejected. As Jesus told a couple of disciples to go there and prepare the place for him to come and minister, they were absolutely rejected. Jesus and the disciples, which is really kind of like a, a, a tribalism. They don't come here or even an ethnic prejudice. Jews and Samaritans were always at it. As they came in, and the Samaritans, we want Samaria for Samaritans. Jesus said to the Jews, get out of here. Leave. Don't be here. We don't want you here. They wanted the foreigners out. Get out of here. They reject the Jews, and Luke records in this story, and Jesus. And so what do the disciples do? They reject them. They return the favor. And this shouldn't surprise us. First of all, because we know, and Jesus says many times to his disciples, when you follow me, you will risk rejection. You, you will risk some people thinking less of you or flat out rejecting you as they did to the disciples. Remember, Jesus is exclusivist. Remember, he does say, the, I am the way, and he is being exclusive there. There is no other way. I am the way. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, not only that, but Jesus asked us to submit our lives to him, to his lordship, which is all-encompassing. It's every area and corner and facet of our lives. And that message is not always a popular message, even for those who follow Jesus. And then you add to that, he wants us to speak out for him. You put all those three things together, and you can see why we shouldn't be surprised when rejection comes to disciples. And add to that that Jesus sometimes asks disciples to die for him. That's, you're thinking, wow, let's sign, let's sign everybody up. That's hard. Like I said, it's, he won't be domesticated today in this passage. This is an example of the rejection we might face on a smaller level, probably, when we try to bring Jesus maybe to bear on our family at a holiday gathering or on the phone as we're talking to them, or in our workplace, or with our adult children, 
or probably not going to be kicked out of somebody's country or home or life. But we do face it on smaller levels, and we can if we really follow his call as a disciple. But while the Samaritans, their, their, their racial rejection of the Jews is, is wrong, and it was wrong, what's most important for us to see today, this morning, is the disciples' response back. That's what Jesus wants us to see. Because what do they do? They respond in anger. They respond uh, in anger this morning and, and judgmental condemnation. And we're supposed to see this too. Not only the example of being rejected, but the response was, in a, was an appropriate response. We're called to refuse to respond in anger and condemnation when we face rejection. We have to refuse to respond in anger and a condemning spirit. Because that's what we're meant to see primarily in this passage is their response to the racial rejection, which was wrong, but Jesus wants us to see his disciples. They respond in rage. Jesus, let us call fireballs from heaven. Did you catch that? Let us call fireballs from heaven to burn them into a crisp. We want, we want holy toast for breakfast. It's pretty incredible. Wipe them off the face of the earth, he's saying, or they're saying. They want judgment to come down from heaven. And what does Luke say Jesus does? He rebukes them. He rebukes them. We're not sure what he said, but I think we've got some idea. Why does he do that? Why does he rebuke them? Would Jesus would have been just in calling down judgment for somebody rejecting him? Because he ultimately will do that someday. Why does he do that in this moment? Because Jesus knows that right now, right now in life, right now is a time of grace and mercy and the opportunity for forgiveness and for the gospel to be spread. That's the time right now that Jesus knows was, was taking place. They were calling for judgment. And Jesus is saying, no, that, it's not time for that. Now is the time to extend mercy and grace and the gospel and forgiveness to people while it's available. While it's here. And, and actually, hasn't that been Jesus' ministry so far? If you can remember back, I know it was a long ways ago, but we, we covered a passage in Luke 4 back in the spring when Jesus read in the synagogue from the scroll of Isaiah. He read from that scroll in Luke 4. And as he read from the scroll in Isaiah in the synagogue, he said these things. Now's the time of good news. Now's the time of the gospel. Now's the time of the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped short. He stopped short in the Isaiah quote, leaving out the day of vengeance. And they were shocked. Why is he doing that? Why is he, why is he leaving out the judgment part? It, it, it's, it's comparable and similar to what's happening here. Jesus knew that now was not the time of judgment. That is coming, but now is the time, the day of salvation. And that's why he rebukes them. As Peter says in 2 Peter, the Lord is slow, or not slow, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now's the time of grace and mercy and the gospel, a time where the Lord is being patient, not wishing any should, should perish. And the disciples are saying, burn them up. Send holy fire from heaven. For all the disciples knew, there would be a future day when those Samaritans would repent and believe on Jesus. Give them more time. They didn't want to give them more time. But shouldn't that be our attitude as well? Not a condemning spirit, but an attitude of, oh Lord, in your patience and mercy and grace, give them time. Let them repent. Let them see you and believe. But as you think about, as I think about my life, you think about your own, how do we sometimes respond to our enemies or to who we might think of as an opponent or somebody that we would define as an outsider? How do we sometimes respond to them? Whether it's externally or maybe a heart attitude, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're not their judge. 
You're not their judge. We're not going to call down fire from heaven today, guys. Now, that doesn't mean the Samaritans weren't wrong. They were wrong. They were sinning. They had a racial prejudice going both ways, and they acted upon it. They were wrong. They were sinning. But Jesus, in other places we know, says, judge not lest you be judged, right? However, as we think about this word judgmentalism or judging, I want to make sure we define it carefully. Because that verse, which I think Jesus is implying here, don't judge them lest you be judged. That verse also has been one of the most um, misinterpreted and misapplied verses in the entire Bible. That's not to say, as Jesus says, don't judge, or as he says to his disciples here, it doesn't mean we can't address sin in our life, in others' lives. Or that the Jews could have come in and said, guys, that attitude is, is, is harmful, it's hurtful. Um, let's try to work through this as followers of Yahweh. It's not to say we can't address sin or speak out about real injustices in the world, in our church, in our neighborhoods. We have to, and we should. But what's our motive? That's where Jesus is getting at. What's our motive? As we address sin, as we address real wrongs or injustices, is our motive humility, kindness, mercy, gracious? Or is it like Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem? What was he doing? Weeping weeping over the rejection of himself, desiring, as Peter, we read, that none should perish. That's the attitude we should go about. As we address real wrongs, as we sit across from someone who's got a really different opinion or view on whatever the topic might be, or is it like the Samaritans? We hear that kind of talk sometimes today. Kick them out. Get rid of them, leave, get out of this place, kick them out of our, whether it's our nation, our state, or our town, get out of here. Don't come here. We kind of hear it a little bit today with Portland and Canby, city and, cult, city and rural. That's been around forever, that kind of mentality. Or it's like the disciples, wipe them off the face of the earth. Let's have some holy toast. We can't respond, Jesus is telling his disciples, in anger and condemnation. We've got to resist that self-righteousness, that condemnation, that judgmentalism. I hope you hear that today, that a little more nuanced definition. It doesn't mean we can't call sin sin. It just means why are we addressing it in the first place in someone's life? I've spoken about this recently, but it's really easy nowadays it's not hard at all. A click of a, a, a mouse on a computer or your phone. It's really easy to find um, angry Christian voices to listen to. It's not very hard, is it? You can find them on YouTube and actually turn on YouTube and the, the automatic algorithm will feed you video after video, won't it? Once it knows what you're kind of looking for. It's not hard to find angry Christian voices today. And by that, I don't mean voices that Call, are calling out sin, or calling evil evil, or even pointing out opposition to the gospel. I don't mean that at all. As again, I said, we have to do that as part of being a disciple. But there is a way to do that that offers mercy and holds out forgiveness rather than those who might demonize their opponent, call down fire from heaven they don't deserve to live anymore. There's a way to do it that doesn't demonize or, or reduce our opponent to like a 2D cardboard cutout we can use for target practice. There's a way to do it differently. Where's this happening maybe in an inappropriate or unhelpful way in our culture right now? Well, we see it this weekend, Jews and Palestinians against each other now in war. We see that. We see it in our culture there still are real issues between races that are real and exist. You see it there, kind of the demonizing of opponents. Gender issues that are going on, a war in our culture between male and females. We've got generational divides that take place, not only in the town, city, or culture, but, our, but churches too, between older generations, youngers, boomers, and millennials, that whole thing that's, you know, out there. I'm Gen X, we kind of are the for invisible, we kind of just slid through and latchkey kids that people <laughs> kind of forget about our generation. 
But there is, there's generational divides, isn't there? They're real. The fieriest, you know, political divide right now, everyone's calling down fireballs from heaven, aren't they? It's okay, you can laugh. They are. It's real. It's a real thing. It's a little uncomfortable, though, I know. But that's the, that's the tone of all our discourse nowadays. Call down fireballs from heaven. We can't demonize our opponents or call them crazy um, one too many times. That's not helpful. It's not helpful for discussion. And really, that's kind of the germinating seed of rain down fireballs from heaven. Or disagreements between Christians and non-Christians or immigrant versus native or city and country. We know that. Those are real things, real attitudes. Or, or when someone gets frustrated with their pastor and kind of throws down the California card. That happened. <laughs> They're all examples of the seed that left unchecked, combined with power, becomes rain down fire from heaven. Rain down fire. Now, any one of these people that we would characterize or categorize or kind of turn into a 2D, they're, they're, they're more as humans than that one thing. I'm, I, I, I promise you I'm more than a guy that used to live in California. I am. We're, we're richer than that. We're deeper than that. There's, we're more complex than that. I mean, Jesus doesn't think here that they're just Samaritans. They're human beings. They're image bearers deserving of one more opportunity at least, one more day to live, to repent. So he rebuked them when they wanted to call down fireballs. They're image bearers worthy of hearing the gospel. And we need to be reminded that today, that true judgment can only ever come from God. And anytime we try to do it, it's misapplied. It's, it, it gets out of control. It turns into rain down fireballs from heaven. And then we also need to be reminded that when we are rejected, what are we to do? Leave, not destroy. They leave. They go on to another town, hoping that Jesus will one day have mercy on that person, on that people group, on that other, however you define them. Remember, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's rejected by his own. What did I say he does? He weeps. He weeps. Did he have the right to get angry? Yes. Did he have the right to call down fireballs as the creator of the universe? Yes, but he wept. He wept at their sin, at their lostness. Well, that's the example. Let's look at the call. The example of how rejection comes and how not to respond. Let's look at the call. The kingdom call as a disciple to count the cost, to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Well, first, one is not to get revenge upon our enemies when we're rejected, but there's potentially much more cost that Jesus makes very clear, as I said, in this hard, it's a hard passage today. He won't be domesticated. And it's the section of this message where probably each and every one of us will be asked to give up something on the way. And not today, in coming months or weeks. This is where we see Jesus' call to follow as larger than just a destination, larger than just get to heaven, but to follow along the way. A much richer, richer defini definition of discipleship. As, as Pryor said in that quote, I said, to, to, to follow his ways, to be like him, to die to self or other even good things for the sake of the kingdom. To bear fruit that tastes divine. It means discipleship is just as much about sacrifice and change in the here and now than just our final destination. It's along the way. In these three quick interactions we're going to look at here, Luke records Jesus' challenge to those who would rather have comfort and security over faithful following and obedience to him. He puts, Jesus puts following him in just a few little verses here. He puts following him above everything else. Everything else in life. The sub-point here, I, I, I apologize, I missed this one in your printed outline, so you're going to have to write it in. Here's, here's the point we see in these three little interactions. Jesus may ask you, 
He may ask us to forego things, finances, material stuff, customs, what's expected of you amongst your people, or even family, for the sake of the kingdom. In our first encounter here, the person said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, now, following as that person would have said that, following at this time as a disciple in those days would have meant following your teacher, following him around the village where you live as he taught, and he probably wasn't thinking of going on the road with an itinerant preacher, and he surely wasn't thinking about having to sacrifice and possibly lose material gain and comfort. But that's what Jesus says. Look at verse 58 with me. Jesus said to this first person, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere. Jesus says to this first man, following me, if you're going to follow me, okay, you say you'll go wherever I go, if you're going to follow me, sometimes we'll require you to give up material gain and give even of your stuff, to, to hold your stuff open-handedly to hold of your finances open-handedly. Look, if you're going to follow me, I don't have a place to put my head at night. Think about that. Realize that, he's saying to this potential disciple. We rarely, rarely, if ever, actually talk much about money and finances in our church. Even though Jesus does a lot, he talks, I think, quite a bit about it. But as we come to this passage, it's unavoidable that Jesus is asking this person here to sacrifice some comfort in the material world to be a disciple, to, to be on this kingdom mission. And I speak for a moment, I speak to all of us, but I do want to speak to those of us who call this our church home, or you call it your church home, and yet you're not giving of your stuff. Like I said, we, we rarely talk about this, but this is what Jesus is getting at. To be part of the kingdom mission means to hold your things open-handedly. And that could be anywhere in your life, but one of those places, if you call yourself a Bethany church attender, if this is your home church, is here. We are on this mission. You've seen some of our missionaries we support today that, that are benefit from that, from your giving. I want to encourage you uh, to give if you're not here, more so because obedience will bring you joy and will bring you pleasure to give joyfully. But what would it look like if that's you, you're here today, it's not your church, or it is your church home, you call it that, and you don't give. What would it look like to give? What would it cost you? Could some good come out of that even if it hurt a little? Jesus is telling this man, you follow me, you might not even have a pillow to put your head upon. He's asking us to consider where in our life generosity and loving others through our things, holding them loosely, will bless someone. If you're fed here, I encourage you to give here. We would never dine and dash, right? <laughs> I encourage you. Like I said, we never talk about this, but I cannot. We have to talk about material stuff and finances today because Jesus is challenging this man with very severe words. Or our missionaries that we support, we said, with the Antons, or the Freitas' who were up here last week who are financially short on their supporters. And they said last week, if 20 people gave $50 a month, it would make up their shortfall. There's opportunity in our life. There's others you know in your life that need, need assistance. Jesus is saying here, if you are a disciple, consider that it may, it may cost you materially. The second encounter, the man seems to make a reasonable request, doesn't he? He says, I want to bury my father. It's reasonable. It was the custom of the day. It would be the custom of our day to take care of someone's dead body, to make sure a proper burial or whatever we would do. To, to do that today, it's, it's a totally reasonable request. Now, on the one hand, Jesus' answer is rhetorical because on any given day or most given days, he would want the man to take care of his family responsibilities. Jesus is not saying, get rid of all responsibility you have to your family. But what Jesus is saying is there will be times in your life when you have to choose. 
am I going to, for the sake of custom or what's expected of me, do what I'm supposed to do, or will I choose to follow Jesus? There will be times when he asks you to choose him over family. Remember, Jesus won't be domesticated. Now, of course, he's not saying it doesn't matter what you do with your parents. The Bible says, honor your mother and father. But he is saying, my call to discipleship should rise above every relationship you have. First, material relationship to the material and finances. Second, to the customs of your people group, your town. Yeah, it's expected of you to bury your father. But he says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. He's saying, I must have first place even over family. And he says, go proclaim the gospel. That's what you should be doing. That's what you should be most concerned with. And isn't it usually the places we want to speak up the gospel most, but we're sometimes most afraid to, is family? That rings true for me. What Jesus is saying to this man here is similar to when Jesus says, um, your love for me will make your love for your family, your mother and father, look like hate. Remember that when he said that? He's not actually saying hate your mother and father, but he's saying your love should me should be so all-engrossing and encompassing that it would make your love for your father and mother look like hate. I said it's challenging words today. It means this, that even our family can become an idol. Even our family members and our family relationships can become an idol. It's one of the best things we have that God has given a lot of us is our family, whether it's your kids, your siblings, your own parents, your grandkids. It is one of the best things of life. And yet Jesus in the second person and the third person is saying to us that it can become an idol. A good thing can become a God thing if we're not willing to flex on it even a little bit for the kingdom. Our homes, as I think of family, our homes, yes, they're to be a refuge for us, a safe place for us, a, 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 a harbor from the harsh world for our families. But family activity in our home life and our kids' sports schedules shouldn't be so sacred that we won't let Jesus interrupt. That's the application of what's going on here. And our homes should be used as kind of hubs for hospitality as they are in the New Testament, with an endless string of people coming through them to, to, to show hospitality and love to. They can become an idol, home and family. And Jesus is saying that here. And when they come through our home, experience the love of Christ. Jesus says, more important than even caring for the dead is speaking the gospel of life. That's what he's saying to this man and challenging us with today. He's saying, live in the present, not in the past. Don't spend too much time memorializing the past. As he said, let me go bury my father when there's kingdom mission here now and to look forward to. A similar request shows up in the third story. He says, I just, let me have a little more time with my friends before I follow you. Let me just say farewell. What does Jesus say to him? Look at verse 62. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When we look back, he's saying, we, we, we lose sight of the kingdom mission. When we look back, we lose sight of the mission that's right here now even. I'm not even talking future, but just right around us, he says. You know when you drive with your kids in the car and they're like just going at it in the back seat? Or your grandkids and you're like, they're back there and you're like trying to stay focused and you turn around and do one of these, like knock it off back there. You know, you look over your shoulder. What happens to your driving? You know, you begin to drift, don't you? And that's not good. You begin to drift and you you're distracted and look back from what's right in front of you. You drift one way or the other. You get off track and you even put yourself in a dangerous situation. Jesus saying to, to the man here, people who are obsessed with the past, who put their hand to the plow and only ever look back, he's saying they're not fit for the kingdom. Why is that? Because the mission is right here. The mission is in your daily life. The mission is at work. The mission is at your school. The mission is the house next door to you. The people you're living amongst now. If we're only living in the past, he says, we, we miss what's here. We're going to see it next week in Luke 10. That's why this verse is right next to Luke 10 here. When Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. Like you're standing amongst the harvest, but the laborers are few. 
Some of them are stuck in the past, obsessed with the past. Therefore, he said, he'll say next week as we look at the passage, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. There's a lot of wheat to harvest, Jesus is saying. And to this third person, he's saying, if you don't look here, if you're always looking there, you got to look here to the mission. You put your hand to the plow, looking away from our own maybe self-centered temptation or our concerns with comfort, as he said to this man, or money, or cultural conformities, we will miss the harvest right here. Right here. I think one of the ways this is showing up in our culture right now, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on. A lot of hand-wringing. A lot of worry. A lot of people using it to stoke up their group or their people about kind of the bygone days. It's one of the ways it's showing up in, in the church a lot right now, at large. This, in cry, uh, this kind of incessant cry for, we got to get back to what we had. we got to get back to the bygone days. The former days were better. The good old days were better. I think there's even a political slogan out there about that, getting back to what we once had. There's a lot of voices out there right now. As I said, so much available to view, and much of it is meant to stoke up fear in you. Fear. You better be afraid. We don't have what we once did. You better look back to what we had. We better get that back or it's all lost. It's meant to stoke up fear. And both sides of the aisle, it stokes up votes too. It does. Using fear. Things were better. Get back to the good old days. We're in danger of losing it all. Fight. Battle cries that sound much closer to fire raining down from heaven than God's grace and mercy. And so much of that distracts us, Jesus is getting at here. You look back, you look away from the mission, you get distracted. When reality, think about this, the reality is that, yeah, things are changing in our nation, things are changing in our world, but for the mission of God, nothing has changed. People are still lost. Hell is real, and judgment is coming. Has that ever changed? That has never changed. For thousands of years, that has stayed the same. That's why he's saying you put your hand to the plow. Don't look back. It's not wise. You'll lose sight of the mission, and the, the harvest is ripe, Jesus said. And actually, the Bible tells us the same thing. Ecclesiastes 7. Don't always be asking, where are the good old days? Wise folks don't ask questions like that. Ecclesiastes says it. I gave it the message because it was a little more poignant and understandable. Don't always be asking, where are the good old days? Wise people don't speak like that. Why is that? Because there's plenty to do in the here and now. And the mission has never changed. And God's still on the throne. And he always will be on the throne. And he still wants to redeem sinners. And we have the gospel. And actually, the good old days, they weren't actually good for everyone, if we're honest, were they? They weren't. They were not good for everyone. And if we keep going back there, as Ecclesiastes says, we will lose sight of what God has for Bethany Church today because he's got a lot for us. There's a lot of good going on here and he wants more to happen. We'll lose sight of that. I'm not saying history isn't valuable. That's not what Ecclesiastes is saying. Or that we can't learn from history or contemplate the past. We've got to do that. We just can't let the past or imagined past dictate and direct and shape our future mission. It can't be the primary thing. I told you those were hard, aren't they? They're really challenging words from Jesus. What are we seeing here? We're seeing this, that Jesus will test you and I along the way with little forks in the road. Little forks in the road. Will you choose me or will you choose this thing, whatever that might be? Jesus will bring you and I, as individuals, as a church, at times in our life, to decisions where he says, choose me over that. Choose me over that. Choose your church over that. Choose risk over comfort. He will ask us to do that. He's saying discipleship is of utmost importance to your life. More important than everything in your life. Anything. He's shown us that in these three kind of broad examples that we too can be accommodated, can't we? 
whether it's to culture or finances or family or friend or culture pressures, we just don't act that way. That take us away from kingdom work. That there will be forks in the road. And maybe you'll have one today or this week where God calls us to choose him over these other good things even. And he's telling these people and us, we've got to look every day in the mirror, really, to remember the way is not just to a destination. The way is every day and every choice and every relationship we have. The way, he calls it. We've got to be willing even to critique our own inner circle and our lives along the way. He's trying to shock us here. He's shocking them. My guess is they didn't follow along, maybe. But he's trying to shock them with how seriously he takes discipleship and being a follower of Jesus. If your Christianity is just about getting to heaven and getting saved from hell, what Jesus is saying here, I'm not actually sure you've understood the call of a disciple. I've had people say to me over, the, over times in ministry over the years, as a pastor, they've said to me, you know, I could never be a pastor. And usually the reason they give is like, it's like, you're always on and always available, and it's like people all the time. And sometimes when they say that, I th I'm thinking in my mind, I want to say, but I don't. Um, <laughs> isn't discipleship full-time for everyone? I mean, that's everyone. It's not a part-time job. That's what Jesus is saying today to these people. It was never just about getting the promotion to heaven and getting saved. It's not less than that. I want to be careful. It is that. But it never was just a part-time job or getting your airline ticket to heaven. It was more, always more than that. The day after day, walking in the way, even when he brings us to forks in the road where he asks us to give up even good things to follow him. But we need an answer because this is really hard and Jesus won't be domesticated and walking in the way is challenging. But there is an answer. There is an answer. And, and here is what the answer is. How do we face this rejection? How do we face this loss? It's by seeing that Jesus gave up all three of those things that I mentioned in point two. All three. Finances, custom, family, and friends. Jesus was willing to give up all of those at all kinds of forks in the road for you. We have to see that. Here's what I'm saying. God is not asking you to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done on an infinite level. That's what I love about the incarnation. It's that as God put on flesh and became human, he was putting himself on the line, so to speak. If this was a God who was distant and said, I want you to do this, this, and this for me and give up family and finances and, and friends and all the customs of your people and then was distant, you'd be like, yeah, right. I don't know if I can trust you. But guess what? He did all of the things he's asking us to do. He was doing in the real time everything he was asking those three disciples to do. We know those things. He gave up friends and family and customs. Remember, he went to his own and his own did not receive him. All to purchase a new world to the kingdom. That's the language in this text. The kingdom and, and disciples of that kingdom. He gave up much of the pleasure of this kingdom to purchase the next one. Fork after fork in the road. He walked the path he's calling you to walk. He put his money where his mouth was, didn't he? He put himself on the line. Think of Satan's temptation over him in the beginning of his life. Power, influence, food, daily bread, all of those things. Satan said, you know what? Give up the mission God has for you. I'll give you all these things. And they were good things. And what did Jesus say? No, the word of God is what I will do. God's mission is the one I'm here to follow. Until he reached that final one, that final fork in the road, it was the garden. Do you remember that night when he said to his father, you're asking a lot of me. You're ask this is a big fork in the road, father. You are asking a lot of me. This is too great to bear. I'm not sure I can do it. I can't do this. I can't choose. Is there another way? Why did you choose me for this? This fork in the road is too big. All of those things along the way, yes, but this one, father, 
this is really hard. Comfort, family, friends, finances. I, I, I said no to all those things. And we know how he responded. Do you know? He said this in Luke, Father, if, if you're willing, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He chose the fork. He went for you. He's done this for you. The answer is the gospel. The answer is the gospel. This is the kingdom answer to all those hard challenges Jesus threw down to his disciples. And the more that grips you, the more that melts your heart and takes over our own kind of claustrophobic kingdoms of one, the more it does that, we will live more open-handed. We'll live in real meaningful, more meaningful ways. It's the only way to face rejection and loss. It's the only way. And to have that desire and passion to keep our hands to the plow. So what do we do? We hear it and we go and we live outside these walls and proclaim the kingdom. That's what he said. Go proclaim the kingdom. Jesus gave up all at every fork in the road. Let's pray. Jesus, you've asked us some hard things today. You've asked us to self-examine and look at our lives and the things that co-opt and shape us apart from your mission. Many times they're good things, Lord, but we need your help. We need your spirit to self-evaluate, to see ways in areas of life, whether it's relationships, cultural expectations, or the material world that we're holding on to too tightly. Would you take each of us a step further in knowing you today, Christ, we pray.